Good morning, everyone. I'm really thankful to be here this morning. Without going into details, um, came very close to not being able to be here this morning, but uh, God is he's, uh, hes sufficient and He supplies what we're lacking. As I mentioned last week and as Pastor Roman mentioned this morning, on Friday nights we've been going verse by verse through the book of Hebrews, and there are five primary, five primary warnings that come through the book of Hebrews, and obviously the book of Hebrews was written to Hebrew Christians. So they were Jewish Christians of the diaspora who were Hellenistic and they were more affluent and they, more, they were more open to Hellenistic ideas and influences. And so the author of Hebrews, unknown, um, unknown to us anyway, uh, had concerns that they were being assimilated by the culture or they were taking elements of the culture and combining it with their Christianity on one side on the other side, and you, you really have to come from a Jewish background or study Judaism, uh, at least at a surface level, to understand that Jewish people would have a problem with Jesus as the Messiah and his revelation and his authority being superior to that of angels. Because when you look back through the Old Testament, most of the revelation that came to them from God came through the mediation of angels. And so they didn't have a problem with Jesus as the Messiah, uh, but they had a problem with him being man as having more authority in his office and in his revelation than that of angels. Subsequently to that, the author of Hebrews launches directly beginning in, verse, in chapter 1, verse 1, and launches right into immediately the fact of the divinity of Christ. So Christ is divine, and as such, his revelation is superior to that of angels, Moses, and the Levitical priesthood. And that's the way of book, the book of Hebrews flows from front to back. So as I just said, the author makes his case by contrasting the per person work and revelation of Christ by constantly referring back to his to historical events that his audience, because they were Jewish, would be very familiar with. His motive for doing this is to demonstrate, as I said, that the Messiah, Jesus, both God and man, his revelation and his authority is superior to that of angels, it's superior to that of Moses, and it is superior to that of the Levitical priesthood. And so he... he takes them back into their history, and that's what I have, have endeavored or am endeavoring to try and do, to go back and look into their history to see where the pivotal events were. And then as we look at those pivotal events, we, there are certain questions that logically arise given the premise uh, that is absolutely supported from front to back in the scriptures that there is one chosen nation and one chosen nation only, and that is the nation of Israel. The United States is not a chosen nation. Canada is not a chosen nation. The nations of Europe are not chosen nations. Only Israel is a chosen nation. Now, this is to be understood as distinct from the way God deals with individuals in the church. And we'll, we'll, we'll get to that in just a couple of minutes. So if you remember, if you were here last week, you remember that I keyed, keyed this study off of the first of five primary warnings that come through the book of Hebrews. So while the epistle of Hebrews is written to uh, uh, Jewish Christians, there are all, it's also applicable to us as the Gentile church and as Gentile believers. So I... I, I cued this whole study, this whole look back into the history of the Jews at their pivotal moments on Hebrews chapter 2 verses 1 to 4, which read, and I'll read them again, therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. That is a very important phrase, lest we drift away. That's actually one word, I'm pretty sure, in, in the Greek text. For if the word spoken through angels proves steadfast, 
and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? There it is. That's the title. How shall we escape? Uh, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him, God also bearing witness, both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his will. It's only when we come to see the consequences that they suffered as a result of their gradual increasing neglect of what was provided to them through the mediation of angels that we can fully apprehend what the consequences will be, not only for them, but for us as, as Gentile believers in neglecting this great salvation. Now, if you remember, just a moment ago, I said to you that there is this phrase in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, lest we drift away, that is, is part and parcel of the first primary warning. Now, this is what we see when we look back at those pivotal moments in God's dealing with Israel in the Old Testament, that there wasn't an immediate full-blown departure, but that de the departure happened slowly and by degrees, so that over the course of time, uh, when the time come that they would finally go into captivity in 586 B.C., we'll go there in a minute, they were actually worse in their practices than the pagan nations around them. This is declared by God in the Scriptures, that you are worse than the surrounding nations around you. They were engaging in, in, uh, in child sacrifice, uh, temple prostitutes in the temple, and we'll look at that in a few minutes. So, so I said that we would do that by observing, by kind of moving through a five-fold trajectory over last week, this week, and then, Lord willing, two weeks from today. Number one, Establishing the fact that God loves Israel above all other nations. That doesn't mean that God loves a Jewish person more than you as a Gentile believer. Hear what I'm saying. God loves the nation of Israel more than any other nation on the face of the earth. There's a difference between those two statements, okay? And so that's number one. And number two, by surveying a few major events and moments in God's expression of love for Israel... And as we saw last week, and we'll continue to see this week, at times, God's love towards Israel is expressed with ferocity as he corrects them for trivializing and disobeying the word, the law that was delivered to them, that was mediated from God to angels, to Moses, and to them. The point being, if God, if we can see just how severely God dealt with them for trifling with that law. How much more so will he deal with ferocity, again, love, but expressed as ferocity, with those who neglect, who let slip away by gradual degrees the revelation, the gift, and the grace that God has imparted not only to Jewish believers, but to Gentile believers of the church age through Jesus Christ our Lord. There it is. Okay, so last session, we looked at, we began with talking about, just for a few moments, the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant was a unilateral covenant. God promised to Abraham, I will do this for you, and you, I promise to do this for you, and the seed that comes from you. This is my covenant to you. There were no obligations on the part of Abraham and on the part of his descendants to fulfill anything to bring that covenant into effect uh, and in perpetuity, so to speak. Then we looked at Joseph and his family and how they were providentially moved by God into Israel, how God moved them there uh, in, the, in the 16th dynasty, I believe it was, and they were a friendly dynasty, but over the course of time, uh, a hostile dynasty came into power in Egypt and thus enslaving uh, the family of Joseph or the Jews who were in Egypt at that time. And so the question naturally arises, and this is kind of how I closed, part of my closure for last week's messages, why would God, if he loved this people and, and wanted to increase them, why would he 
in his providence, in his, in his ordaining power and authorities as omniscient, omnipotent, that is all-knowing, all-powerful, why would he bring into power over the people that he loved a government, a, a rulership that would be hostile to them and enslave them? That doesn't seem to make sense when we look at it, when we consider it with an earth-based logic and an earth-based reasoning. Well, last week as we looked, as we considered it, was to separate them from the pagan idolatry of the Canaanites who were under the curse of God. And so you see that very clearly in Genesis chapter 9. We talked about this last week, that when, when Ham... Noah's son went in and looked upon his father who had fallen asleep in a drunken state in his tent or in his cave or wherever it was that he was. And he went and told his brother and Noah found out about it that he pronounced a curse. But he didn't pronounce the curse on him. He pronounced the curse on his grandson, on Ham's son, Canaan. And that curse was a curse that was to be a perpetual curse, not only upon Canaan, but upon all of his descendants that God had promised, had pronounced this curse through the mouth of Noah, that one day he would obliterate the Canaanite people. Truth be, truth be told, there are no Canaanite people walking the face of the earth today. They were obliterated. So God separated them by, by leading them into, a land of, into the land of Goshen, which I said last week was an isolated region in Egypt, it was plush, it was fertile, it was the perfect place, perfect pasture land, but it was separated from the primary population centers of Egypt at that time. And they grew exponentially. I mean, just think about this for a moment. In a few generations, just a few generations, they grew from 70 to approximately 5 million people, which is the estimate, give or take, of what came out of Egypt in the Exodus. That's supernatural. Not to mention, you know, the fact that they were farmers and pasteurizers. When did they find the time? You know, five million people. So they were, they were busy, obviously. They were a busy people, and God was blessing them and increasing them. So God brought them there to increase them. So one, to, to keep them separate from the pagan idolatry that was, well, every place else in the world. You remember we looked also at that verse in Genesis chapter 38 last week where Judah, when they were in the land of Canaan, took a Canaanite woman as his wife, thus jeopardizing the genetic purity of the line through which the Messiah would come. God said, that's it, you're out of here. And he sends them all into Egypt in the land of Goshen. And in the land of Goshen, their population increases to the necessary strength that they would need to carry out God's curse upon the Canaanite people. And we would march them into the land of Canaan. And you know, uh, you know we're, we're not going to get into the actual events, the scriptural text, but God said, when you go into that land, you obliterate every living thing. Every living thing, starting with Jericho. Obliterate every living thing. God had determined that he was going to obliterate the Canaanites, and he was going to use Egypt to do that. Okay. So we looked at that, and then we closed with an axiom that through hardship, through pressure, through persecution, God's people are made stronger and more resilient. This is not an easy thing to come to grips with. This is true on a corporate level where, where, where God's people are gathered together, that the times when they prosper and grow the most is not during the easy times, but during the tough times. That's when a local group of believers will grow more strong in their spirituality and their walk with God, when things are tough. But this is also true at the individual level. Believers, uh, one thing I can tell you for sure, now having, I've been walking with Christ for some 36 or 37 years, is that the tests never stop. And I'm not trying to, to put the fear of God into you, but I, I want you to see, I want you to understand that, that the title you know, of this series, How Shall We Escape If We Neglect So Great a Salvation, is not something that I've thrown out there as cavalier because it's kind of a catchy phrase. 
But the tests do not become easier as you, as you walk, as you progress in your spiritual journey with Christ. Is they become increasingly difficult. Increasingly difficult. I can tell you, with God as my witness, that though I've been walking with Christ for more than three decades and, and counting, that the tests that I have undergone over the past year and the tests that I am undergoing at the present moment, at the present time, are the absolute toughest ones, and I am hanging on most days by my fingernails. And my fingernails are, are clasped, clasped on God's Word and knowing who God is and that He is faithful and that He has a reason for all of this. So this is important for us to grasp that things get... God uses the hardship to draw us closer to Him. He uses the hardships in our lives to, uh, as a clarion call uh, to, to our homeland, to our home country. All right, so we're going to move on today, uh, and we're going we're to continue. And we left off last week where Israel was enslaved. And as, we, as you move on now into the whole Exodus story, uh, now Aminhotep I has been succeeded by his son Aminhotep II, and it's this Aminhotep II that Moses comes into conflict with during the Exodus. So there are 10 plagues that during the Exodus, God visits upon the nation of Egypt to free his people, the Jews. The question is, why 10 plagues? God could have done it with one. He could have done it with none, right? As a matter of fact, here's an interesting point. You read in Exodus chapter 9, verse 12, but the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh and he did not heed them, just as the Lord had spoken to Moses. When you look at the ten plagues, when you look at, 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 the, at, the, at the end of the plague, when, when Pharaoh beseeched Moses to, to, uh, to pray to, to Jehovah to release the plague, and God released the plague, it, that in the first five plagues, it says, but Pharaoh hardened his heart. But when you go from plague six to six to actually six to nine, because after ten that was it, they were done. You find at the same time that it that it changes, and it says in the text that God hardened the heart of Pharaoh. So the question is why, why this change? And I think it's because after the fifth plague, Moses was done in, and he was ready to relent, and let him go. But as an act of judicial hardening and judicial, judicial recompense, uh, God hardened Pharaoh's heart because he had determined that he was going to bring that judgment on the people of Egypt. Not only that, but when you look at the ten plagues that, they are, that, that were visited, they were visited, they were judgments against ten prominent gods that the Egyptians were worshipping at that time. So he was demonstrating his power over the gods of Egypt during that. Okay. Anyway, after three months' journey through the wilderness, and having been tested eight times, and having failed all eight tests, mind you, the Jewish people arrive at Mount Sinai. And we read in Exodus chapter 19, verse 1 and following, In the third month, after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on the same day they came to the wilderness of Sinai, for they had departed from Rephidim and had come to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. So Israel camped there before the mountain. And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him, the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So now they're brought out of Egypt and they're brought to the base of Mount Sinai and God offers them, and they were not compelled to accept it, 
uh, this covenant on Mount Sinai. We, we commonly think of it as the Ten Commandments, but there were actually six, 613 commandments. And this was, this was a, what was being proposed was a national covenant. It was something that was proposed as binding on every single Jewish person alive at that time or who would come after them. As I said, it was a they were not compelled to accept it. It was, it was a voluntary a proposed covenant. Okay, so now when you jump to Exodus chapter 24 and verse 1, you see the response of those who had come to the base of Mount Sinai. Now he said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. And Moses alone shall come near the Lord, but they shall not come near, nor shall the people go up to him. So Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which the Lord has said, we will do. So all 613 of those, uh, uh, of those uh, commandments were now binding on every single Jewish person alive at that time. And as we'll see, when the covenant is renewed after 40 years, because subsequent to this event, it didn't take long for them to break the covenant, right? So in Exodus chapter 32, we have the incident with the golden calf. And finally, in Numbers chapter 13 and 14, when they come up to the promised land, and send in the spies at Kadesh Barnea. They refuse to the go, go into the land, and God said, that's it, 40 years in the wilderness. So the question is, if God loves Israel so much, why would he put them through this? If God is omniscient, and he is, and he knew in advance that they would fail to keep the term of the covenant at every turn, why would he do this? Why would he... Why would he the nation that he loved so much in this position. Now, mind you, this is what's called a national covenant. It was binding on every single Jewish person. And a national covenant, this national covenant is such that if one member of the covenant group violates any of the 613 precepts, the whole nation comes under the judgment, under the curses. And so when you look at the offerings that were, there were, you know, the burnt offering, the trespass offering, those were only permitted for those violations that had occurred unintentionally so that the covenant relationship with the people, so that they would not be cut off from, from their fellow countrymen, uh, would not happen. But they were only provided for those violations that were committed unintentionally. There was no offering for intentional violations of any of the 613 commandments. So it was a national covenant. So after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, the covenant is renewed in Moab. So we read in Deuteronomy chapter 29, and I want to read uh, the first 14 verses to you so you can get some context here. These are the words which these are the words of the covenant which the Lord commanded Moses to make with the children of Israel in the land of Moab besides the covenant which he made with them in Horeb. Now Moses called all Israel and said to them, "You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land. The great trials which your eyes have seen, the signs and those great wonders Yet, listen to this, yet the Lord has not given you a heart to perceive and eyes to see and ears to hear to this very day. And I have led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you and your sandals have not worn out on your feet. You have not eaten bread nor have you drunk wine or similar drink that you may know that I am the Lord your God. And when you came to this place, Shion, king of Heshbon, and Oak, and Og, king of Bashan, came out against us to battle, and we conquered them. We took their land and gave it as an inheritance to the Reubenites, to the Gadites, and to the half-tribe of Manasseh. 
Therefore keep the words of this covenant and do them, that you may prosper in all that you do. All of you stand today before the Lord your God, your leaders, your tribes, your elders, and your officers, all the men of Israel, your little ones and your wives, also the stranger who is in your camp, from the one who cuts your wood to the one who draws your water, that you may enter into the covenant with the Lord your God and into his oath, which the Lord your God makes with you today, that he may establish you today as a people for himself and that he may be God to you just as he has spoken to you and just as he has sworn to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I make this covenant, I make this covenant and this oath not with you, let me read just a few more verses, but with him who stands here with us today before the Lord our God, as well as with him who is not here with us today, or the future members of that people. But notice what it said in verse 4, that after all of that, after this covenant, as, they, as he is giving them a second chance at renewing this covenant, now mind you, 40 years had passed, and at the refusal to enter the land of Canaan, they were sent back into the wilderness for 40 years until everyone 18 years and older had died. Now, 40 years had passed, and those who were, let's say, 18 at the time would be about, what, 58 years old, right? And so now they're on the verge of going into, uh, into, Can into Canaan, and God gives them a chance to renew the covenant, and, and again, it was voluntary, but they accepted it, and they accepted the terms of the covenant, not only for themselves, but also for those who would come after them. But notice what God said in verse 4. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. What's that all about? That phrase, given you a heart, means to put a heart, a heart of understanding within you. So God does all of this great work in front of them. All of the deliverance in Egypt, all of the provision in, in 40 years in the wilderness. And God says to them, you've not understood it. You've not really seen it. Because I never gave you a heart to understand what this has all been about. Okay, so now moving forward... Uh, I'm going to read to you out of a passage out of Deuteronomy chapter 30. So this kind of gives context, but I want you to understand as I read these first 10 verses that this, this, these are prophetic verses that have their ultimate fulfillment in the future, future time to us, during the time of the tribulation. And there are some interesting things in here that I want you to see. So now, look at how Deuteronomy 30, verse 1 begins, Now it shall come to pass, when all these things come upon you, both the blessing and the curses which I have set before you. You, you see what God is, is telling them there? When all these things come upon you, meaning that God knew and had ordained ahead of time that not only the blessings, but the cursings would come upon them as well. And you call them to mind among the nations where the Lord your God drives you. Now we're, let's say the Exodus occurred about 1440, so about 1400 BC, let's give or take, this happens. They don't go into captivity until the northern ten tribes in 722 BC, uh, Judah in 586 BC. So a bunch of years before it happens, God says, this is going to happen to you. This is, this is part of your future. <clears throat> Where the Lord your God drives you, and you return to the Lord your God and obey his voice, according to all that I commanded you today, you and your children with all your heart and with all your soul, that the Lord your God will bring you back from captivity and have compassion on you, and gather you again from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. Do you get that phrase again? And gather you again from all the nations where the Lord your God has scared you. So this is actually speaking to a second regathering. 
a regathering that occurs just before God moves upon the hearts of those living at that time in grace and regenerates every single one of them. So the first regathering we are actually seeing. The first regathering of the nation came in 1948. The second regathering comes during the tribulation. But listen to what he says. If any of you are driven to the farthest parts under heaven, from there the Lord your God will, will gather you, and from there he will bring you. Then the Lord your God will bring you to the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. He will prosper you, multiply you more than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. You find this expressed in Jeremiah 31, 31. This is an event that is future to our time. It has not yet happened. But it happens during the time of the second regathering. Therefore, the regathering that took place in 1948 was the first regathering. There's yet another regathering to come. Verse 8, And you will obey again the voice of the Lord your God and do all His commandments which I command you. Then the Lord your God will make you abound in all the work of your hand and the fruit of your body and the increase of your livestock, so on and so forth. And all of this can only be fulfilled. None of this stands in fulfillment even today. It only comes into full fruition and fulfillment during the time of the Great Tribulation and at the onset of the initiation of the Millennial Kingdom. Okay. But notice then, again, that it's not if, but when it shall come to pass, when all these things come upon you. So it's not if these, not, but when. So so God knew it's part of his plan. I, you, you can't fathom it. God loves this nation so much, why would he put them through this? I mean, he's God. He could just do anything he wants. Abrahamic covenant, it's all yours, all your descendants, all yours, and that's it. From Egypt to the river Euphrates and beyond. Why did God choose to do this? Okay. And it just gets worse. From here it goes into Joshua, the book of Joshua. And in the book of Joshua, they didn't reconquer the land. And they, they, they began to intermingle with the Canaanites and the Amalekites and all of the different kites that were there. And they, they began to water down. They started marrying their women. Their women started marrying their men. Before you know it, nobody knew what the hell was going on anymore, basically, in reality. And it just gets worse and worse. And then you move into the period of the judges. Oh my goodness. I mean, they were absolutely crazy. And you look at the judges and you say, wait a minute, this guy is a cad. And God is using him to judge Israel? You see, God is releasing them. Remember what it said in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, lest we drift away. This is what's happening. We're seeing this in living color in the Old Testament. So with each, with each wash, rinse, and repeat in the book of Judges, they just get worse and worse. Until you come to, you know, who, who's, the, who's the ultimate judge there? Samson. You know, I mean, Samson. I, I don't even know what else to say about that. It just gets worse and worse. And finally, God says enough. And in 722 B.C., you can read about it in 2 Kings chapter 17, verses 1 to 18. God brings the Assyrian Empire against the ten northern tribes. And it's very specific language. The language there is very specific. God is calling Sennacherib to come down and to take the ten northern tribes into captivity. And so you've heard me say this before over the years. So when the Assyrians came into the ten northern tribes, they, the, they took all of, the, all of the, the leaders, kind of the leaders and the, the most prominent men of their society, they castrated them, and then they took metal hooks and set them through their jaws, come out their mouth, and by chains led them back to Assyria. 
where they made sport of them by impaling them on sharp pointed spikes and watching them writhe themselves to death, impale themselves to death. What? But Sennacherib goes too far because, you see, he thinks he's done this all in the power of his own might. So he says, you know what? I got the ten northern tribes. I might as well finish the job and go after the bottom too. God says, uh-uh-uh-uh. And an angel of the Lord comes out. When the angel of the Lord comes out one night and strikes down dead 185,000 of the Assyrian army that were encamped around Jerusalem. That put an end to that. But Judah... They didn't pay attention to what happened up north. And it just got worse and worse. How bad did it get? Well, in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 2. Now, Ezekiel was... So the, the deportation that took... I don't want to get ahead of myself. Anyway, let me just read... Ezekiel chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, because now this is God's judgment, pronouncement of judgment on the southern, on the southern kingdom of Judah. He says in chapter 1, chapter 2, verse 1, And he said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet, and I will speak to you. Then the Spirit entered me when he spoke to me, and he set me on my feet, and I heard him who spoke to me. And he said to me, Son of man, I am sending you to the children of Israel, to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. For they are impudent and stubborn children. I am sending you to them, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Ask for them whether they hear or whether they refuse, for they are a rebellious house, yet they will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, do not be afraid of them, nor be afraid of their words, Though briars and thorns are with you and you dwell among scorpions, do not be afraid of their words or dismayed by their looks, though they are a rebellious house. You shall speak my words to them, whether they hear or whether they refuse, for they are a rebellious, for they are rebellious. But you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Do not be rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give to you. So God pronounces this judgment now through the prophet Ezekiel on the southern kingdom of Judah. Why? Just how bad did things get? This is how bad things got in the southern kingdom of Judah. They actually went way beyond the northern kingdom. So you'll see this in, in Ezekiel chapter 8. I'm not going to read uh, uh, the whole... Actually, should I? Yeah, let, let me just read that to you so I can walk you through them. What I'm about to read to you will be an account of how for 60 years under the rule of Manasseh, the Jews defiled the temple in five ways for a period of 60 years. In Ezekiel chapter 8, verse 1, And it came to pass... In the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I sat in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me, that the hand of the Lord fell upon me there. Then I looked, and there was a likeness like the appearance of fire, from the appearance of his waist and downward, fire uh, from his waist and upward, like the appearance of brightness, like the color of amber, the Shekinah glory. He stretched out the form of a hand and took me by the lock of my hair, and the Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem, to the door of the north gate of the inner court where the seat of the image of jealousy which provokes to jealousy. So there's the defilement number one, which was the erection of the Ashtoreth, which was a Canaanite deity, in front of the entrance to the north gate. Now the north gate was the gate through which the animals that were to be sacrificed were brought into the temple compound, thereby defiling not only the temple, but defiling the sacrifices that were being brought into the temple. So there's, there's defilement number one. Okay, uh, so um, drop down to verse 7. We'll pick it up there. 
So he brought me, so he continues to move into the temple district. And in verse 7, so he brought me to the door of the court. And when I looked, there was a hole in the wall. And he said to me, son of man, dig into the wall. And when I dig into the wall, there was a door. And he said to me, go in and see the wicked abominations which they are doing there. So in, any, in the walls, within the walls of the temple district, there were porticos and there were rooms. So Ezekiel is, is told to, to dig and look into, dig through the wall and look into this room to see what's going on there. And when he did that, this is what he saw in verse 10. So I went in and saw there every sort of creeping thing, abominable beasts, and all the idols of the house of Israel portrayed all around the walls. So they were now, they were now in secret worshiping the idols, all of the, the Canaanite deities within the temple compound. Verse 11, And there stood before them 70 men of the elders of the house of Israel, and in their midst. So, so the 70 elders would represent the Sanhedrin. So the Sanhedrin were in this inner room, the place where the Sanhedrin would normally render judgment, and they had engraved these pagan idolatry symbols, insects, snakes, birds, whatever, on the walls, and they were worshiping them, thus defiling the temple in the second way. Drop down to verse 13, way number three. And he said to me, turn again and you will see greater abominations that they are doing. So he brought me to the door of the north gate of the Lord's house, and to my dismay, women were sitting there weeping for Tammuz. You know who these women were? Anybody want to take a guess? Temple prostitutes. That was part of the worship of Tammuz. It involved temple prostitution. This was taking place. This had been taking place for 60 years in God's house in Jerusalem. 60 years. So that's defilement number three. Let's drop down to defilement number four in verse 16. So he brought me to the inner court of the Lord's house, and there at the door of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about 25 men with their backs towards the temple of the Lord and their faces towards the east, and they were worshiping the sun towards the east. Whoa. Anybody want to take a guess as to why it was 25 men? It's a kind of an odd number. The reality was there were 24 courses of priests. So there were 24 priests. The 25th was the high priest. We're in the temple worshiping the sun god. The Egyptian sun god would be Ra. They were worshiping the sun god. The 24 priests who were ministering in the house of the Lord plus the high priest. That's what they were doing. Okay. One more, defilement number five, comes in Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 1. Then the Spirit lifted me up and brought me to the east gate of the Lord's house, which were facing eastward, and there at the door of the gate were 25 men, among whom are those names. And who are these guys? Well, verse 2 lets us know. He said to men, Son of man, these are the men who devise iniquity and give wicked counsel in this city. So they were the... They were the equivalent of the, the city leaders who were now perverting justice uh, in God's city. God tolerated this for 60 years. 60 years he tolerated this, and he finally said, that's enough. And so he brings Nebuchadnezzar into the city. Now, mind you, the conquest of Jerusalem by the Babylonians took place in three phases. This here takes place, what is, the words that are being spoken of here were given during phase, between phase two and three. So in 586, Nebuchadnezzar, who was really a very patient man, he was quite patient. In 586, God brings Nebuchadnezzar after, after rebelling against his rule twice before, Nebuchadnezzar says, that's enough. I've given these people a break, I've allowed them to worship their God, I've allowed them to live in their city, and all they constantly do is rebel against me. Get there, destroy the city, destroy that temple, get those people out of there. 
Only it wasn't him who was saying that, it was God saying that. And so 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar comes for the third time, destroys the city, destroys the temple, and off into 70 years captivity they go. Why would God, why would God, knowing that they would not keep this covenant, which is, which is everything that we've talked about, represents that gradual drift away which led them to this point, which were promised to them at Mount Sinai. If you do these things, I will bless you. If you do these things, you're going to get these curses. The events that we've just looked at are about the curses. And then you can see, we won't go through it because we're kind of running short on time here, that the glory of the Lord departs from the temple in stages. It's kind of like the, the cherubim swoop in. You know, they kind of swoop in and they... they they take the presence of God and they move him out of the Holy of Holies onto the threshold, out of the threshold, then out through the east gate, and then up to the Mount of Olives, and then God. And interestingly enough, when the Shekinah glory returns again, that's the way he's coming. From the Mount of Olives, through the east gate, into the Holy of Holies. And once the Messiah walks into the east gate, it will be forever sealed. And that's it. Why would God, knowing that they would not keep his covenant, nevertheless offer them this covenant? Again, it was a natural, a national covenant that they would most certainly violate. All of the resulting consequences that would come upon them, not the least of which would be that God would give them over to their sinful desires. The answer to this one central question will become evident and should really bring all of us to our knees. And that will come in the concluding sessions. But I want to just, I don't want you to leave here today with some takeaway. We've talked a lot again about history, the history of the Jews, what God is doing, but is there, is there some things that we can filter out of this that have application to us as the Gentile church? Yes, there is. God is patient but there is most certainly a limit to his patience. Look how patient he was. 900 years he put up with it. But eventually, enough is enough. God loves us. Remember what I said last week. There are times when he will express ferocity towards us. That ferocity is not to, not to judge us, but to correct us and to get us back on course. Believer, if you're struggling with some, some sin that is really, it's, a, it's torpedoing your walk with Christ, know that God loves you. And know that God will stop at nothing. He has promised to bring you into His kingdom and He is going to bring you. And God will stop at nothing. Know this, that God is patient, but there is a limit to His patience. There's a limit to it. And you don't want, really, I think we've all been there, nobody wants to be on the business end of God's correcting stick one day longer than necessary. Okay, that's that. Two, we are under grace, but grace has its obligations as well. Those obligations go well beyond what we're given in the law, and if you want to see this for yourself, just go read the Sermon on the Mount. You know, under the law... The, the sin of adultery only became chargeable under the law when you actually engaged in the act. In the explanation of the, you know, the, just the depth to which that applies in this, in this dispensation is the moment you have an adulterous thought, that an adulterous thought enters into your mind, you have violated that. So the obligations of grace are much more stringent and demanding than the obligations of the law. God expects, God knows that we're not going to perfectly fulfill them, but God expects us to, to participate and to work towards rooting out the sin in our lives that is 
that stands as a barrier, as an interruption in our fellowship with him and in our fellowship with one another. Those obligations go well before what were given in the law. The obligations of the law were external obligations meant to reveal what was in the hearts of men. The obligations of the law, a law of Christ are meant to demonstrate what God's grace has enabled by means of regeneration and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Believer, whatever sin you're struggling with, they're all out there, right? Whatever sin it is that you are struggling with, I can promise you this one thing, that God's indwelling spirit and his regeneration has enabled you to defeat that sin and get it out of your life. So you can either cooperate with it or you can end up on the business end of his correcting stick. For most of us, we need to be on the business end of the correcting stick. That's just the way it goes. We are called to be holy, that is, to be set apart. To the degree that we refuse to use the potential that God's Spirit has enabled within us, listen to this, we in the same way defile the temple of God. Listen to what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17. If anyone defiles the temple of God, now this is spoken to Gentile believers, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. This is to be understood both in a corporate and an individual way. We here, those who are the genuine believers here are the temple in which God dwells. And if one of us is in somehow engaging in something that is detrimental to the whole body as a whole, God's patience will eventually run out and he will act. But this also applies to us as individuals. If you are a believer, the Holy Spirit dwells within you de facto, you are a tabernacle for the Holy Spirit. And if we defile that temple, God will take us apart. It doesn't mean loss of salvation, but it means that there's going to be a heavy price to pay. So we are called to use the grace that he has entrusted us with to play our part in advancing the kingdom. There are serious consequences when we neglect the great salvation and the gifts that have been entrusted to our care and use. In our final session, we'll both see and answer what I have called the cosmic question as to why God would bring all this upon the nation he loves beyond all others. Mm -hmm.